I'm Colin McLoon and welcome to season two of the You're Not On The List podcast produced weekly for Rewind That Track. On this podcast, we interview, dive deep and take a journey into the lives of those in the music industry. Everything from backstage in green rooms to on stage at festivals, we're here to chat to the people that make up the scene. If this is your first time checking out the podcast, thank you very much. If you haven't already subscribed on Spotify or Apple Music, can you hit that follow button? And while you're at it, if you're feeling extra supportive, can you give us a five-star rating if you enjoyed the series? Right, on with the episode. My guest this week is a fantastically talented DJ, producer and label owner. He's part of the Southampton Supergroup 4. It's Gavin Ford. During this episode, we discuss how from early on in Gavin's life, he knew he wanted to be a DJ and took a job at a record store in Southampton to get the practice in early. Like I was selling my school lunch to pay for records. Um, <laughs> I'd go in and they used to think I'd like was robbing parking meters or something because I'd come in with like pound coins and like, oh, I want this record, that record. But buying any record, like, you know, any record that they'd sell me. How sometimes it just takes that one event to change your whole outlook on life. We were always thankful for that day because at one point, like, I can remember thinking, this is it. This is the last, this is the last weekend I'm going to do this. And how Four came about to securing an advertising deal that was featured in cinemas, on TVs and across Sky Sports around the world. It's fucking mental, to be honest. Like, <laughs> and we got an email saying, oh, can we use your song in an advert? Then the manager goes, oh, no, I think this is something. This is a thing. They won't tell you who the company is, which I would suggest, usually suggests it's someone quite big. My guest this week is a fantastically talented DJ, producer, label owner and podcast host. He's part of the Southampton Supergroup 4, has played the likes of Boomtown, Peer Jam, Amnesia and Garage Nation. His group has seen their music signed and released on the likes of Warner Music, 440 Records and Friends of Four, while securing distribution deals with the likes of ITV, Channel 4, Sky Sports, is Gavin Ford. Good evening, Gavin. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. You? I am very well. I'm very well. We were just talking about there earlier. We're sort of mid-December now, talking about going out around Christmas, potentially doing the unforgivable and our previous experiences of going out on Christmas Eve. You said you've stopped doing that now. Yeah. Um, is that is that going to be the same for this year as well? Yeah, I'm done. I'm retired from the Christmas Eve drink. I'm, um, I went, we did a gig one time, Christmas Eve, Eve, and I didn't make it Christmas Day. And like my fa- my family have never forgiven me for that. <laughs> and is that just and, going yeah. too hard? Too hard? Like what sort of time were you rolling in? Do you reckon the Christmas I Day? Know, I just couldn't. I just I just couldn't wake up. I went into went into Christmas Eve. We had Sparks and Kai. We all did like Sparks and Kai were like our here like their garage MCs, classic garage MCs. Rest in peace, Sparks. He's no longer with us. But we booked them just to MC over us playing, just our mates. This is like year like years ago before we were anything, and it was just. If you can imagine, like performing with your like heroes, heroes. like I think they they stayed on for ages. It was incredible. <laughs> the crowd was good. Like I've never been so fired up in my life. Like on all and all of our friends, it was like, oh, I I, I run a club. What, what can I do? And I'll book our favorite MCs and all of my mates to DJ of our favorite MCs. And it was just 
We still do stuff like that. We booked Bushkin from Heartless Crew for our last Christmas party again, just to MC over all our mates' stuff. I might, I should do it more. It's like the best. In a, feeling. a fortunate position where you can go, who's my heroes? Who's my heroes from my childhood? See if we can get them a collaboration in the club with the energy there. Uh, yeah, it's got to be a dream come true. I recommend it to anyone that's a DJ. If you're into it, like, I'm like always been obsessed with MC Skibbity. Shabba debt when I was growing up like I watch any sort of video any sort of things with them seeing on it I love and I just always think oh, I'd love to have them MC for me one day and then I forget that sometimes I'd actually just do it and book it but I should do it once a year it's like the best feeling ever yeah those old school take backs uh, of like listening to like you said MCs going over the top there and um, yeah it's in a unique position to be able to go right I'll just go through I can get in touch with their agent I can get in touch with that roster and just like you said booking them over the top of there how do you find it sort of um, like for example that uh, that that set where you booked your like your heroes back there and if you hadn't met them before and you were DJing and they were MCing over the top like before were they just sort of like naturally took like a duck to water like you didn't have to do sort of like any preamble or meet them or be like right this is my mixing style or this is that style they literally went with it there was no conversation especially back then this is like before before facebook but it's not quite that long but it was early facebook no instagram no ways of messaging these people you just book them through however you book them their agent or through them they turn up you go to go, oh, you're going to DJ with us? And they're like, cool, just roll with it. Like yeah. nowadays, I think, mate, perhaps, you, they, I don't know. I, I never, I haven't put an MC, but I think most of the MCs, the good ones will just turn up and just go with anyone. And like Adapt. some DJs will be better than others, but some of these people have been doing it. But the best ones have been the best ones for like the last 10, 20 years. Yeah. So they, they can MC over absolutely any nonsense and it sounds good. So yeah, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the best, it's of all the things that we do, that's like, those are the moments that stand up, especially if you can get your friends friends involved as well because say we're all djs we all come up together we all met through djing local clubs and local residencies so to share those moments with everyone is like is one of the best things so yeah, absolutely. Uh, about like you say, coming up with your friends, coming up and having those original residencies from Southampton, mm-hmm. taking it all the way back to your roots, taking it all the way back to the start. What are sort of your first earliest experiences with music? Not necessarily like DJing, but sort of like music in the house or like sort of some of the first stuff that you remember listening to, some of the first albums you remember getting. I remember... Um... I can remember, I'm just really going to show my age. So I can remember when you used to have to listen to the radio with a cassette in and you used to have to press record and play at the same time to record the song. So you like, and I can remember one of the first music memories is I can remember sitting in front of the radio trying to record Terence Trent Darby's sign your name across my heart. <laughs> Which is still a heater. I, do, it. Need to go I don't know it off the top of my head. Terence. Yeah, I, I, I'd sing it, it but I'd butcher it. <laughs> like, it, yeah, we've seen it. Any, anyone like listen to that song? And I can remember seeing Michael Jackson, the way you make me feel, video on TV, and being like obsessed with this guy dancing and into the thriller video. And then that was like the first memories. But I can remember hearing the Prodigy, the Experience album, oh, and just being blown away by it. Still blown away by it. How does he? get these sounds and there's so much, oh, it's just, you can't stay still when you listen to it. It's mate, you still listen to it now and I'm still as blown away in a left field leftism album. I can remember being at my nan's house, explaining to her how good the left field album is. Did she appreciate like, it? Going through it? She pretended to, bless yeah. her, but she wasn't, which is madness. <laughs> she should have been. It's a great album. Yeah. But, but yeah, and I can remember like just... I can remember just having all these albums in front of me and just like trying to play my nan all this 90s rave and dance music, trying to show her how brilliant it was. And then Goldie, Ronnie Size. But I remember it's the tape packs. I remember that as we touched on slightly with the, not just the MCs, but it's having, when I was at school, like tape packs and flyers, you could only get from the 
cool underground record shops there's only two in Southampton and they're daunting places to go into as a you know however old 11 12 years old what were they called movement records which I went on to work to um, that'll come up and trip two records in Southampton <laughs> they were the two they're right next to each other one was a drum and bass one just pure drum and bass and the other one was everything but daunting places to go so people would sell flyers you know the big dreamscape yeah yeah, yeah. like the fantasia and everything else like that like the hardcore and the rose ones yeah they used to do these massive flyers that were like incredible art on them and people used to stick them on their walls but you have to have the bollocks to go and pick up the flyers from the scary shop if you had the bollocks then you could bring them into the playground and sell them and if you had real <laughs> bollocks and you could buy the tape packs then you copied the tapes and sold the copies of the tapes. So I was bit buying these tapes and listening to it and just you had no grasp of any of, of I didn't have any idea what was going on because my re- visual reference of music was music videos or top of the pops. Yeah. So you're hearing these vocals and a guy shouting and crowd noise and keyboard sounds. This is what's going on in my head. So I was imagining just a, the most energetic top of the pop performance ever. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like Aqua on, like, yeah. on 40. Like, like going around, like um, girls singing really fast. The guy showing it like that someone must be on the keyboard like this. But just thinking this is like, this is amazing. But having no idea what was going on, just thinking this is, I, I don't know what this is, but I was obsessed with it. And I was obsessed with finding music that no one else had. And I was obsessed with this underground sort of culture of it all. And then one day I saw the LTJ Bookham documentary and LTJ Bookham was like, he was touring Japan. He was a DJ and he was touring Japan. And that's when I, re- I thought, oh, that's what I'm listening to. It's a guy playing records. And I just turned around my mum and said, I, I, that's, that's what I want to do. And she was like, nah. <laughs> no what way. age is this then, do you reckon? What age is this? What are we talking, like 10? I was 12. 12, okay. 11 or 12. I started really, really young. Yeah, And I was like, I kept on and on. And I was like, listen, look, no one else does this. I don't know anyone in the world that does this apart from LTJ Bookham and the people on these tapes. No one in Totten does it, which is part of Southampton where I'm from. Yeah, I'll be massive. Like, it'll be instant, mum. So she got me these decks for Christmas. I like the enthusiasm straight away. I like the enthusiasm. Well, I like the confidence as well. Like, and I understand it. Like, I the get confidence. it. But I, I didn't understand it. So I got the decks for Christmas. And then the next day I went to, we well, come back from school. And it's like, what'd you get for Christmas? Decks. And goes, oh yeah, he does that. He does that. He does that. I was like, oh, what? I thought I was going to be the only one. Oh. All these people that are doing it. Are we talking belt driven ones? OG, oh, like belt yeah, driven. Like, yeah, yeah. Sound lab, belt driven, horrible. Horrible. Yeah, difficult to mix on, but I, very... I didn't. I didn't. I didn't take to it at all. It's the only thing like I've ever stuck with to learn how to do it. Like I, I didn't. I didn't take to it. It took me over a, over a year to learn how yeah. to do it. No, no how... YouTube tutorials. And what were you like, learning to mix on originally? Like, what sort of music are we talking about? Are we talking jungle? Like you said, hardcore and stuff. Or? It was ha- hardcore music. Was yeah. Was it some? Ju- but any any records I could get my hands on. Like I was selling my school lunch to pay for records. Um, <laughs> I'd go into the record shop. I buy records off John Doe, who's now in my partner in four, and yeah. I've been made music with since this. I'll go in, and they used to think I'd like was robbing parking meters or something because I'd come <laughs> in with like pound coins and like, oh, I want this record, that record. But buying any record, like you know, any record that they'd sell me, I would, um, I'd buy. There's no sort of. I just liked everything. I still like everything now. Not tonight. You're not on the list. Hi, it's Gavin Ford from Four, and you're listening to the You're Not on the List podcast for Rewind That Track. So from an early age and as an early kid, you must have had a, a mad record collection, like a really big building it out, like weekly, monthly record collection. Oh, yeah, it was mental. And I, I lost, I, I put it into storage and it leaked, it, it flooded oh. and lost a load of it. I've got, I've still got some, but. Heartbreaking, mate. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now we, I've had my, I've had my decks um, 
refurbished so they work again and going through the old records and it's like i can remember where i bought this record and where i found it and the, the trouble getting it like and i miss all, all of this stuff i miss i miss the tape packs i miss um record shopping i miss all of that fine the difficulty of finding music and also like your strength was in your record collection it was a it was a unique thing wasn't it it was a unique thing you'd go to see artists you go to see djs because they had a specific record we sort of see it slightly now with dub plates like in a certain couple of genres like a certain artist will have a certain dub plate for a little while like they won't really share it like it's probably pretty big the biggest ones is obviously in in drum and bass and i would say maybe baseline as well but probably drum and bass to be honest like where it sort of had that sort of dub plate culture still but like you said you used to go and see djs because they would have that sort of style of music and it would be specific to that sort of style of dj like it was it, like you said there it was a it, you couldn't really copy it was difficult it was a, also a, an effort i mean i'm not i'm not talking like i i obviously personally haven't experienced it but going from like vinyl djs having to lug around under records and record bags and stuff like that the weight of it the sheer oh, weight of it well after that after that there was a after i gave up djing for a bit i think the timelines get a bit skewered but i did commercial dj and i used to take three of these record bags like to do five or six hours of vinyl yeah. That I, that I don't miss workout in itself and it getting up, getting up and down well, the stairs with three records the DJ booth was up a ladder hoisting <laughs> these things up the ladder. like mate no way no that's that that can yeah that that that, that can't I don't, I'm not into that like no. it's great that people are buying vinyl again but I'm not I'm not taking a long live the USB long live yeah. the USB at the moment so we'll, we'll, we'll jump back a little bit like you said there we got we got slightly out of time so you were you were buying records you'd got your first set of decks you were buying vinyl bits and pieces mixing hardcore and then there was a couple of other boys and stuff at your school that you were like oh he's DJing as well he's DJing as well what sort of were the next steps there then were you uh, to sort of like um, format you know I've got, got a job at, my, I've got a job at the record shop the same record shop that I go in and buy the records for yeah so that was with John Doe wasn't it like you said your partner John Doe and like James Avila was working on Saturdays he was like went on to be like 11th best DJ in the world or something stupid and a guy called Feature Cast who's done he's an incredible producer he's done music for Apple adverts and stuff it's incredibly like in this space of these incredibly talented people I was only 15 like doing Saturdays like and all like my heroes from the hardcore thing Hixie, Brisk Ramos UFO Supreme would come in his record shop and I was like what the like when people go, obviously you didn't know who they were. Like go, oh, and you go afterwards. Like who's that? Because you just kind of, you know, they'd have a demeanour about them, and they go, mm. oh, that's Hixie, and I'm like, what? That's like he's my hero. Like I don't know what he looks <laughs> like. like. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what he looks like, but oh, so me and him are friends now, and he really, t- if he hears me say that, he's going to really take the piss out of me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but he was, and like he he brought the shop in the end. Again, my story. Sorry, I go all the way, but he brought that's the right. shop in the end, and he took me to all the gigs with him and stuff and that's where i fell in love with dj we'll come back to that but yeah i worked in the record shop um and it say it was just it was just the most incredible experience i can remember sitting there thinking how do all these people come to one small shop in one city like in the city i live in like blew me away and it sort of made me feel like oh well, maybe this is possible maybe you can have a career in this thing like because everyone's here and I know what this person to do but the one thing it did is it did delay me from DJing because James Abila worked there I don't know if you've ever if you heard of James Abila have you ever seen him DJ I haven't mate no I haven't seen him DJ but if you if you google him he he's like the test pilot for Pioneer Pioneer send him stuff now and he works out and tells them what to do and what's wrong with it he DJs now and it looks like he's DJing in a spaceship he's got so much equipment <laughs> but back then obviously you'd come in on a Saturday and if we want house music, we'd play the house records, hardcore music, drum and bass music, whatever people want. You just skip through the records and go, yeah, I'll have that, take that. 
he was going between every single genre. He was scratching. He was doing. I was watching it as a kid. Like, how is this good? And he was just a local re- at the time. He was just a local resident at the club on a Friday night. He yeah. was the resident. James Abila was upstairs, and Artful Dodger and Craig David were downstairs at that stage when I was at the record shop. That was the level yeah. of talent in Southampton as a resident. Jesus. So I was like, well, I'm never going to be a DJ. If that's how good residents are, how must how good must Cole Cox be if this yeah. is how good the resident is? So I stopped DJ. <laughs> like I thought, I'm not going to DJ, I'm going to make music. That's going to be my way in. And there was a studio upstairs and there was an engineer called Steve Punch and I used to sit up with him and they'd, I could, they'd leave me up there and it was all about pressing buttons and seeing what worked, seeing what didn't, testing things. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's how that side. And then eventually, like, we started opening the shop. Are we talking that's on actual, like, hard, um, hardware? Yeah, all hardware, like, so, like, yeah. Different sizes, like, actual, like, no, yeah, no Fruity yeah. Loops, no Ableton, no anything like that, no, proper hardware no, back in the day. <laughs> no, Cubase and hardware, and we still use Cubase now. But then the record shop started opening on a Sunday, and it was open 12 till 4, and no one come in apart from, like, the odd guy who's still going from Saturday, like, off his head, <laughs> oh, I'm peeking, I'm peeking, and he sold him 300 quid's worth of trance, but, but that was not rare. So I, I, would sp- I would spend like four hours a week, just all the genres, and I'd just try and zabila z- it, like I'm going to just learn how to, I don't know why I wanted to learn it, but yeah. I saw him do it, so that was the pinnacle, and then I taught like, just learn what music, the BPMs of music, what music works, what music definitely doesn't work with each other, and from that um, little tester, what would you say is a surprising uh, match that goes together, like BPM wise or genre wise, where you were trying all different bits out? What were you? What did you I'll learn? Tell you what, I'll tell you what I did. I learned didn't go together. Well, I learned that <laughs> I learned that you know all sorts of stuff goes together. Like I used to do a thing with Aha, Take on Me, and yeah. Bad Company. Six what, days. What the nine? Oh, no, six, six days. Yeah, days. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and right. uh, Take on Me and that go together. Yeah, yeah. Used to do. Uh, a shy FX chopper and a Scott Brown record, nice a record. Like I might even do that. I might bring that back. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> but there was things. But like, well, it <laughs> it was good. But it, I learned quickly that doing it out is that there's an art to it. I mean, I still did very much DJ like it now. Like I I want to find those moments where I can transcend and go from. From one thing, I want people to not to expect what it is. And people, um, you know, it's, it's I still try and do it. But it's, you, I learned that you can do it wrong. When I first eat one of my first ever gigs, I learned that it, it can go wrong. What was uh, what was it that went wrong? Can you remember? Or do you want to talk about it? It was, it? A, it was a remix of Olive, You're Not Alone. Okay, yeah. John Doe's remix of Olive, You're Not Alone. And I mixed Daniel Bedderfield, Got to Get Through This In. Okay. It's, but so much like, dust had got on the needle it sort of skipped across, but I'm so like in the zone. I haven't really paying attention and look, look. By the time I, by the time I finished the mix and looked up, just everyone's gone. Oh no! <laughs> the gone. And my friends still take the piss out of me now for it. Because um, they're like, like go on. I say, oh, DJ, DJ, I was like, oh, you play a schwai because I oh, do that big Daniel Bedford. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think yeah. you can. Play, have you ever have you ever tried it on CDJs? Now have you ever tried to bring it back to get you know full circle closure on it? Fix. I mean, I'd practice it in a record shop; it would work. But like, there's a huge transition from DJing in your bedroom and DJing in clubs, especially that like I say, especially those days. Still now, I imagine. But oh, you didn't have the. Um, I was going to say it's easier now, and I couldn't think why. But you can see the BPMs and stuff, can't you? You can. Yeah. People got sync buttons. There's all these things like you had your ear. 
You weren't used to these massive monitor speakers. You weren't used to entertain it like it was a... I had so much more respect for DJs once you start DJing in in clubs like that and DJing with your just your ear. Like I think it's still difficult now with having everything you got, but back then it was it was crazy hard. So yeah, that was so that's what I got back into to DJing through the, the thing. But then I, I we um we started making um me and John started a, a hardcore group called CLSM. We had quite a lot of success with that, but then vinyl sales stopped. People stopped buying vinyl, and that's how you got money for music back then. So what sort of era were those people uh, stopping buying vinyl, do you reckon? 2003, 2004. Yeah. So this is just, the CDs obviously were coming to the forefront. CDJs were just being introduced. This was they like LimeWire sort of file, Oh, like, early file sharing days, yeah. right, okay. So that's sort of what became the, the kind of... DJ, like the, the CDs were starting to turn up in clubs. So you're burning stuff, turning up to clubs with... CDs, you weren't buying the vinyls anymore. And mm. um, it was getting to a point where it was difficult for two of us to survive on dwindling record sales. And obviously, you don't, well, you'd have to sell all the records before you could buy the next one and stuff. And it was a thing. And there was, we did um, some remixes for Ministry of Sound and got some album deals. And it was like a load of money coming in. It was like, well, this is the time. This is the time to split because all the money's here. If we carry on, who knows what will happen? Yeah. So quit and I, that's when I, I went on a, become a manager of a club, which led me to. What was the club? It was called Earth Club in Eastleigh. Okay. Um, Eastleigh is just in some, it's just up some Southampton. But the uh, the owner employed me to do promotions. And then, because I worked at the record, she used to work in a record shop. I'd buy his records for him. He was the DJ, he was the resident. And then I was telling him that he's DJing wrong. Then I would do the first bit, uh, first hour of DJing, the second hour. Then I was just DJing. So I was managing and DJing. Then I was taking his records and doing gigs in other clubs. But this is like R&B and garage and stuff, which is far removed from the hardcore stuff. Not where I wanted to be, but I was just naturally just just good at it. And that's what took me off into into um, out of rave music and into garage and R&B and how did you find the yeah, transition from obviously if you're playing like sort of like you said uh, D&B stuff and hardcore stuff sort of that 174 165ish that type of stuff and then moving uh, into like R&B and into garage was there sort of like much well no because how- that's what I do on the Sunday in the record shop in around that time we started selling hip hop and R&B around the same time the Sunday started and I was just fascinated by it and I just wanted to learn about it so not just learn about how, DJ and the music, but I wanted to know about the the history of it. Like I was just just always been fascinated by music and where it comes from, how it's made, the, the stories of of how it's made, and like I'm still fascinated now by how things are made and how things come across, how things come out. So like I was just a student of music and still am, and like would just play those records and I would watch DJs that do this sort of music because Southampton had so many garage and R&B nights because Artful Dodger and Craig David and stuff it was just a boom, and like the other people were signed off the back of it and kind of like there's a garage night every night of the week, and that's where the girls were. So we'd go to these things and then you watch, you'd watch the DJs, you watch the things and then work in a club, you like, well, you, you know, and as I say, the James Abilo, Arthur Dodger, they're the residents. So you can imagine how good the residents were. Mm. So I was like watching these residents during the week, coming back to our club on a Friday and going, well, look, you're shit, really. <laughs> you need to be doing this, this and this. And he'd get to a point where he would just let me do it. And then I just, just took over. Then I started doing gigs of his records and then, and then yeah, that was, that was it. So that was sort of how you, like you said, you cut your teeth there with the uh, with the garage influence and stuff. How did um how did four originate then from from those sort of uh, from those roots? So like you said, you had John though that you were in the uh, music shop with. Oh, yeah, me and John stopped. Me and John stopped doing CLSM mm-hmm. in two thousand four ish, 
And then 2009, we started making music again. It was like the fidget era. You remember fidget? Like Ele- is it sort of electro electro yeah. house type fidget thing? Sort of fidget house. Um, Jamie and Andy George. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah I do remember that. Count, uh, Count and Sindon and stuff mm-hmm. like that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was a uh, club called in Junk called Junk in Southampton. Yes. There was a night called Bang Bang on a Friday. I was resident of all their student student nights. I was doing student, well, just resident DJing seven nights a week then. That's massive. Resident DJ seven nights a week. That is huge. It was mental. We, I could do I could do three, three or four on a Saturday in one night because it was wow. that sort of the demand for it was yeah. so big. And I was I was I was good at it. Well, I still am <laughs> good at DJing. <DJ's>, <laughs> yeah, don't say yourself short, man. It was um it was probably yeah, no, probably earning more money than I did now. Like it was mental. It was absolutely mental. Like so at that three, point, seven days a week and sometimes three or four different gigs on a Saturday. Yeah, that crazy. Is that. So, so I was just out all the time. Yeah. Um, but also a bit like of those seven, you know, of all those gigs you do a week, it's playing the same records, like you're playing to the same crowds. It wasn't fucking, it wasn't breaking any boundaries. And I was seeing this music and it sort of like took me back to the, those days of listening to uh, the tape packs and thinking, oh, what's this music? You know, what's this? Yeah, 2009, so this is. So like you said, Alex, so, so fidget out. 2010, yeah, like just catching the, I think it's the very end of it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, John, have you heard this stuff? And he's like, nah. And I was like, oh, look, I'm going to come in and like, I've got this vocal, like we're going to come in, we did this song. We did this song and it, it got played by Andy George, my friend, all the promoters from Junk sent it to all those videos, so they were getting good feedback. So because I would try another one and Mr. Jam played one. Nice. That's, we were that's nice. Maximus Baxter at that point. Nice. And then we went into dubstep and never really grasped the production of dubstep. It's much harder. <laughs> so this is but the, uh, what we're mentioning dubstep here, is this sort of starting just pre-Skrillex just era? Fidget, yeah, like this dubstep sort of took over from Fidget. Mm, so like so, Casper, Roscoe type style. Yeah, all that the same. And this, but this night at Bang Bang at Junk was a Friday night and they played all this sort of stuff. Like, And I was playing with, Playing with them, playing before, they started to get back into it, playing before them and or playing downstairs in the R&B room while the things upstairs. But I was just exposed to all this amazing music and just falling in love with it. And then I saw Andy C again. Andy C was the first DJ I ever saw. Well, he was at the first rave I ever played. He was my favorite DJ at school. Yeah. And he played this bang bang and I hadn't seen him or even thought about him <laughs> for years. But like that from the energy of the intro to thing, I was like, oh look, I, I love this music. Like, how have I forgotten how much I like this and the excitement that this music gives me? Yeah. So I was like, John, right, I want to make rave music again. So we started making dubstepy rave music, which got started to get pick up from toddler T and stuff and started to get a direction. I didn't know how to release it. Yeah. Again, still like the digital stuff, and I just didn't have a clue what to do. So wait, in 2010, that sort of era, what's what's going to be the biggest sort of releases there? Is it, is it going to be iTunes and stuff? Like Bandcamp wasn't necessarily a massive thing there, was it? It would have been like... I think there was some Bandcamp action, but yeah, it was iTunes, Beatport, all the ways it was now, but it was just, we were just trying to get a record deal. Yeah. We were making records, and then I was like, hunting down every using the clubs i worked at to get every dj's email address and like anyone i dj with i'd hassle them and because i was just trying to get a deal like i can remember there's a thing called hype machine at the time i it do remember also, that yeah, yeah i remember the website yeah yeah it was like um so this blogs this was the area of blogs where music was broken on blogs and hype machine collated all the music from all the blogs and put them in a chart and then you could if you wanted to you could go in and get the email address from each blog 
and email each blog your song. And if enough of them featured it, enough of the things you got, the Hype Machine chart. So I would have, I would go through Hype Machine every single blog that played any music that I would say was similar to ours. I had start like seven or eight Gmail accounts because it was a limit on how many you could sell, so, um, send at a time. Two hundred, yeah, five hundred, two hundred or five hundred. But so I just fill these accounts and just send emails to hundreds and hundreds of people look at that graft look at that oh that's old school back in the day like making seven or eight yeah, email so addresses this, to- this is the this is the thing you have to well look at our spotify now and like last week one hundred and eight thousand people listened to four last week yeah like, at the moment it's, it's- different, different people not listen like one hundred eight thousand different and i think i remember those days where i used to have to send out emails just to get people to listen to it like so these these struggles are good to sort of having to go through this yeah and to reflect be able to reflect back as well like you said in 10 years there having to make seven or eight email addresses to send out hundreds and hundreds of emails to different hype hype machine uh websites that are affiliated with it to now like you said what is it on spotify at the moment i got it up in front of me just under sitting under three hundred thousand monthly listeners regularly yeah. Month and, on I say, month. Yeah, and i say yeah i say look, the figure that always blows my mind is the week like say in a week, 108,000, 800,000 people listen to hate individual people in the yeah. world. That's like how many just individual people listen to it. That sort of stuff blows my mind. But um, so yeah, so I was like, saw Andy C and then started making the ravey stuff again. But at the time I was, so we, 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 we clocked on and we just kept making music and not really getting anywhere, sending it to labels, not really getting anywhere, getting a little glimpse here, a little glimpse there. Nothing really happened. Nothing really happened. And then at the time I started clothing brands and a couple of clothing brands really, really took off. And whilst the clothing brands had taken off, my DJ and my resident DJ took me to Dubai. People okay. flying me over to Dubai to be resident. And I was DJing before EZ and Zinc and all the Sigma had a once in Dubai. I just remember like the next day being sat there thinking like, I don't even really try DJing like all production. Like I make clothes and I DJ on make music on the side. Mm. Like, I need to have a go at just DJing and making music like for one year, just solid, nothing else. Clothes I can come back to, like people are always going to need clothes, but it's going to get to a point where, you know, I'm going to look like a dickhead making music when I'm really old and grey and still trying to make me have a music career. You know but what I mean? A, a lot of people are conscious of that, aren't they? About hit, get, making it before a certain age and hitting it before, uh, in the, especially in the electronic, well, not necessarily in the electronic music scene, I just say in the music scene. Do you reckon, uh, what do you reckon, that comes from it's, it's i mean essentially our audience is like 18 to 22 right. in a yeah. club like solid like core go out every week some people people go out older but that's your core that's when that's your sort of phase for doing it like that's when we're going out of our mates and that's when we're discovering it we'll go to festivals together we'll go to islands together mm. that's it and then you start to grow up so some people are just conscious of walking into a club full of 18 year olds and going oh i feel old dogs you know i'm not as bothered by it but i just remember thinking like i, I think I, I just turned 30 at that at that time so it was like um that sort of freaks you out that age like you go oh no what's happening i should be married and i should be this and i should be that so it's that sort of thing so i had no problem with doing clothes i enjoyed doing clothes but i think yeah i was just sat there thinking it's got me to dubai without even trying like i should try Whilst running the clothing side hustle from an office, Gavin rented the bottom floor to two house producers to get back some money on the rental. Little did he know how luck would have it, those two producers would become the fourth members of four. Gavin luckily also managed to secure a loan lump sum, so the group had financial backing moving forward. (laughs) 
I used to rent. This is how did four start? Look how long this has gone round. But this is okay. I used to rent the bottom of our clothing office to two producers who were making House and Garage. Me and John were still making like rave drum and bass type of stuff. Um, and I just started under the name Gavin Ford um, because I thought I'll come back and I'm going to make it under Gavin Ford because that's where I've got myself DJ and that's what I DJ under. And my best friend, Phil Chemish, was manager of Getz and Rude Kid at the time. So I did a remix for Getz and I was like, oh, this is cool. And then Rude what Kid What year is this then? Is this 2013? 14. 14. 14. Might be 13 for the Getz remix. 2013, 14. Yeah. I did a remix for Getz. And then he asked to do a remix for Rude Kid. And Rude Kid had done a version of I'm Sorry, the Gar- old Garage song, Monster Boy, I'm Sorry. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, we want a remix, but we want it like a house and garagey remix. So I was like, oh, well, we can do that, but we do this. But, oh, these two guys I rent the office to, they do that. So let's do it with them. So we did it all together. And this remix went mad. And his, we, ours became the original. Rude Kid's become the remix. It was another vocal. And that's how Four started. We... It, it got played on radio like over 600, 700 times. We did a video that did 70,000, just under 70,000 views in the first week on YouTube on our own channel, which was didn't exist when the video came up. And we got offered a deal and the deal fell through. But we put all of our money into this record, radio yeah. pluggers, because it took to rate. I gave it to Mr. Jammer, a student. Basically, I was DJing student night still seven nights a week. Mr. Jam was booked. I was with him twice. Monday yeah. and Tuesday night, fresh as balls. So we gave it to him Monday and we sort of reminded him, look, I'm going to be here tomorrow. So if you don't play it, I'm going to give you a real hard time tomorrow. So I thought like he... <laughs> Added that little bit of peer pressure in there. Just going, go like, mate, I'm going to see you tomorrow. Don't make it awkward. It. You'd have to hate it to come back here and sit in front of me and go, I didn't play your record. Yeah. So he played it and I got everyone to tweet him. Thing, look, everyone, you need to tweet. God, this is sick. This is sick. This is sick. He yeah, come yeah, back yeah. and he goes, Oh, yeah, I played it. Yeah, so you got all your friends to do it. Like, he knew what I was doing. <laughs> and I, was I, like, I was like, Yeah, yeah. But he played it again. And then people did actually start to spawn. Then Target started playing it. Then this person started playing it. And then it just took momentum. And it went, it went, um, it went mental. We did the video, it went mental. It's going to get signed. And it, it, this is Christmas time, 2014, 2015. And there's a big Christmas break. And by the time the Christmas break come around, a lot of heat had come off the record. The video came out in September. We, yeah. We'd done the uh, radio started in Freshers, September. No, it was October, the video. We started Freshers. It came out in September. So this is like January, which is like an eternity about something that you could do to a record. So yeah, so that was an eternity to... In, in the music industry and that heat had gone off the record and this is like madly when we come back and the guy who was going to sign it said because it was a real it was quite a moody version of it mm. i'm sorry it was like there was a darkness to it there's a darkness to the song if you listen to the lyrics it's it's obviously about someone cheating on someone Cheating, yeah it's very done very happily but there's a darkness to it and we caught the emotion of it which is why it was allowed to go so far because it was the first cover version Monster Boy actually said that they liked because it brought out the emotion of the song as opposed to just trying to do it for the sake of it. And the guy actually said, if you do this happier with pianos and stuff, we'll sign it. And I was like, nah. And then obviously Joel Corey did it years, years later. So maybe that was a mistake because he's doing all right now, Joe Corey. <laughs> but we, I just didn't want to, I didn't even want to make house music. I wanted to make, I wanted to make Garage at that point. Like I've always wanted to make energetic music for clubs, mm. not, commercial stuff for radio 
And so then, like, just by chance, like, you that was January, so uh, you had the... Uh, you, no, like, January, we spent all our money on this record. Um, we gathered up enough money to do an EP, um, which got some radio play, but I didn't really know how to do an EP, really, marketing-wise, being, like, just basically pissing in the wind, had no money left. We started to get gigs off the back of how big I'm sorry it was. I got an agent mm-hmm. to book about, but I'm sorry it was. Always been obviously from the DJ experience, always been good lives. So started to get festivals and stuff and was good. So I was getting return bookings and starting to get enough of a thing to keep it going. Had no idea what to do and made all these records to try and was again chasing a record deal. It's all we knew. Chase a record deal, try and get another record deal, going back to them, redoing I'm sorry, but not doing it how they wanted, doing it enough, trying to find a compromise. Mm. was doing anything I could to try and get money to get back the money we lost and this went on for probably another year two probably the whole year of going on might have been two years this is my, my memory is terrible oh that's right mate and so just to sustain your income for this you've still have you got the clothing brand on the side as well the clothing still- brand's done now okay it's on hold so it's just from the oh, DJing I'm really too far in, I'm too far in not, yeah I'm DJing I'm just about keep I've got two two residencies but they're hard to keep because if a Friday or Saturday come in for four, I'd have to leave them, which would piss them off. But I was just about hanging on by the skin of my teeth. And then I moved to London to try and really make like, this is last throw of the dice, last bits of money. Going to go to London and chase the deal. Like my friend was like, Phil, who gets his manager and stuff. It was like, you need to be in the room with these people. There's opportunities are going to come. And I went to London and he took me to Believe Distribution. And Believe Distribution gave me money to start a label. And I'd never started a label before. I'd never done any of this before. And I like... So did you pitch it? Did you pitch anything to them? Like how come they just? This might sound like a stupid question, then, but how come they? It's off, it off the strength of Phil's like the best talker. Gift ever. of the gab. Gift of the gab. Unbelievable! Yeah, I didn't even play him a song. No <laughs> they gave you money for. A I, had, I had all this music ready to play, and they didn't even hear it. Like they're just like maybe like oh, I've got to stop this Phil guy from talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you any amount of money. Just stop talking. So. They gave me money to start a label and we re- start, We released a song called Stand Up. It's got loads of play on radio again, but again, not didn't didn't really connect. You, and- just, just, uh, just out of interest, because I haven't had the opportunity to ask this and you, you feel free to say, I can't tell you. How much money did they give you to, uh, to start like a label originally? It was 12,000 pounds, like 18,000 euros, 17 and a half thousand euros, I think. Okay, so about but, like, like, we took over two different instalments, but like in hindsight, it was mad payback rate. Like the percentage was real high, but I just, we were fucked. Yeah, like, I didn't even look at it. Like, what am I going to say? Oh, I can't, can't do that, rate, mate. Like, what are you going to say? Well, yeah. Give me money for nothing, you fucking little prick. Yeah. Take what you want. But like, so we released that single, then we released a song with James Hype, who's again, he's done alright as well. Again, they're all doing all right. Nothing's nothing's really fucking setting the world on fire. Again, but I believe in all these songs. They're great songs. Yeah. You're managing to get by there, like pay your bills, pay your rent, pay stuff like that. Yeah, we're we're signing records from artists that we loved. Witty Boy, Hmm. Tengu. Just sort of love these records. Sean Dean, but not knowing what to do with them, which is it's mad. Like this, you know, some Tengu's still with us and Sean Dean still records release and still make a lot of money, but didn't have a clue what we were doing. And they weren't making money then because it's all going back to paying off this debt. So Mm. no money was coming in. We're just releasing these records. And um it's basically us 
my friends, we were sat around and we were making music so quickly because there's four of us. We're churning out all these music, trying all these different singles. Every single was a radio plugger and a this and that and so much money going into it. It was like every record was sending us more and more, going, taking out more and more of this debt. So we decided to do a compilation album. And everyone was like, you can't do a compilation album. No one's gonna, no one's going to buy a compilation album from a load of artists they've never, they not have never heard of. But I was like, I don't want to do another single. I don't want to do another radio plugger. I want to just basically show off all these singles and see what happens. And it was a compilation album, but it was essentially just four people. It was us four. A guy called Kirby, IB for Rock's resident, mm-hmm. went on to be an IB for Rock resident. He's still on the label now. A guy called Fawn, who's like incredible garage producer incredible and bitrate who's now the a&r of our label garage shed um so we all all these people are still involved and we just release and a guy called dots prince was the only guy outside of the of our group of friends who's gone on to do great things as well we released this compilation album and it just fucking went into the chart like went into the album chart it was like number six straight in and this is like the uk national like album what the fuck's going on so what uh, do you think that was then? Was this some uh, marketing from you guys or was this strength, like... Strength in numbers for one. Everyone was always like, look, everyone, you've got to get your mums and stuff to buy this, your friends and things. Like people in Southampton were behind us because we did people in Southampton doing that sort of thing. So is this and 2016, also, sorry, are we talking here? It's been 2016 or... Yeah, it will be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 2016. It's going to yeah. get blurry. Yeah, yeah. Once we get to Friends of Four, the timeline's solid. Yeah. <laughs> but around here, it's all a bit blurry. But it was, it was eight... April, yeah, it must have been 2015, so I must have got blown because 2016 was Yosh 2, it was called Yosh Volume 1. Yep, I remember. I uh, do you know what, generally, what's funny about this is which I haven't told you is uh, is I don't want to interrupt your story here, but I went down to Bournemouth University, I was at Bournemouth University from 2013 okay. to 2016, so sort of prime time when you were mentioning there, people like Kirby. I remember seeing you as well, uh, play at what would it have been? Was it Sound Clash Southampton? There was an event, yeah. In maybe 2015, I think it might have been in Southampton, which you guys would have played at. I think DJ EZ was at it as well, maybe as well. Yeah, that was Soundclash. That was, yeah. That was yeah, yeah. These are the festivals that we were doing that were keeping yeah. us alive. So that was, that was the first time that I remember seeing yourself. And because I was on the South Coast, and for those people that aren't listening or don't really know geography, Southampton and Bournemouth are very, very close. Um, so I used to go out in Southampton a little bit as well. And I remember being out around that time, being around, I think you pretty know, um, uh, kind of Scanland, who we've had on the party as well. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, Foreverland podcast with Foreverland. So I was, he was actually guy, he was the first guy to ever book us outside of my group of friends. Really? Well, I was yeah. the very first resident to ever play. I was the very first DJ to ever play any Foreverland back in 2013, oh, wow. right at the very first one. But that was like, I mean, that's a different part of that. But that from that sort of being on the south coast and hearing those boys, like you said, there all those people appearing on the compilation as well. Uh, it does take me back to uh, to being at university and being down there on the south coast and stuff. But as we were mentioning there. So you had your your compilation out 2016. It went straight in at number went six. Charts, and it ended up at number eleven in the dance album charts or something or dance comp- one of the like, mentally overperformed. Mm. And we went to just after that. We went to um, we did Yosh Volume Two, and again same. But we did like fifty two tracks on Yosh Volume Two. Like I got. I discovered Lengo Land in between Yosh. Lengo Land is a group on Facebook, which yeah. is. We were doing you on the podcast as well. Was one of the earlier ones we had? Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, we discovered yeah. that in between Yosh Boy One. So I contacted everyone on that that I liked Bush Baby, Jay Faded, all these people that I liked and did 52 tracks ago, even more strength in numbers, like even more people buying it and even like spread the thing. And again, went straight up. I think it went a bit higher, ended up in the same place as Yosh Boy One. 
And then we went to Majestic's launch of Pure House or Pure House and Garage in London. And the guys who do Pure, the compilations were there and they collared me and were like, oh, we just heard you did these Yosh albums. How did you do it? Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, how did you do it? You beat all our albums that week. Like, obviously, they've been doing compilations forever. I've yeah, had their yeah. compilations when yeah. I was in college, at school. Yeah. So people um, that might not, might not recognise this, they will recognise the front covers of these. So this will be like pure baseline, pure yeah. house and garage, pure. Like It's got the, the, the prefix after it. And like you said, they're compilations. Yeah, of, used to do them yeah. years and years ago. They've been around for the biggest... Pure Garage is the biggest selling garage compilation in the world. And they do pure running, pure, like, everything. It's a massive... It's in supermarkets, TV advertising. It's a huge brand. It was... It is a huge brand and, like, was back massive and part of a lot of dj's journey so they were like how did you do it so like, oh, can you come in and tell us how you did it and i like, talked to us so we went in and i told them you know the outline of how we did it and they said oh would you do it for pure future garage and i said nah i said you gotta be pure garage or, or i'm not i'm not in it yeah. i'm not doing it didn't think it would happen and they gave us pure garage which was like the album that got us into Garage. Garage, yeah. Loads of people were listening. Like you mentioned that Ezo back in the day doing the continuous mix of all the tracks on there. Yeah. Like people, yeah, pure garage, mate. Loads of people would have like listened to that back in the day. Do you think as well, you might have tapped onto something there where you were saying it was around the era, so 2016, and what you brought at the start saying, oh, people were saying to you, nobody will buy a compilation with people that they've never heard of or stuff before. Because you had a lot of tracks on there and you had artists that had a social following. And like you said, all of you have a, sort of one big family where you where everybody would share it, would go look i'm featuring on this compilation today they'd share it on their facebook they'd share it on their instagram they'd share it on their twitter those that that marketing and that release from having all of those artists on there and having that sort of social flex from like like you said you guys sharing it yourself would have a social flex let alone having like 52 different artists on there all sharing it on their accounts yeah. driving those sales up and driving those numbers and it, was, it, was, and it was all music that, is, that was unreleased before so yeah. if you're the people that buy these albums are djs so I'm a DJ who brought these compilation albums. They'd always have the same tracks on them because they were relicensing things because they weren't built for us. Mm. But I was a DJ who would like, and if there was enough on there that would make it worthwhile, I'd buy it. So I was like, well, why did we give them 14 tracks, 17 tracks, the first one, 17 tracks that they, they all want, and it's going to be a tenor, like it's going to be good cricket. And then fucking, I can't remember what Yosh 2 was, but, it was being, but that was the theory, like it was unreleased tracks. And that's what got us Pure Garage because we got them unreleased tracks. We'd make them unreleased tracks and we'd do the things. And that was pure the DJ. So they'd have they'd license certain things from the bigger names to get into the supermarkets. Hmm. We'd get the um, originals from our friends and we'd make them. And that original content mixed with things. It's, it's, it's original content. It's strength in numbers. It's, yeah, it was, yeah, it says a lot of people making a little noise makes a big noise. And yeah, we we managed to to hack a system, and also not a lot of dance albums come out week per week. Mm. So if you get lucky with the week it comes out, you're gonna you're gonna go up and you're gonna make a dent. If you get like you get a quiet week and no big thing comes out, and you everyone you got everyone to pre order it or everyone to buy it on the day, you're gonna you're gonna jump up and make a thing. And like people understand the charts at iTunes, everyone knows what Apple and iTunes and the charts are. If I say I'm number one on Beatport. Not many people are going to know what that means. Yeah. Normally. But if I say I'm number one on Apple and iTunes, my mum knows what that means. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. mum's friend knows what it means. And then they'll start to get involved. Oh, 
and son's doing this. Have you seen or we better buy it? And my mum's getting nurses to buy it at the ward and stuff like that. And you're creating enough of uh, enough noise to, to for people to take notice. And that's what happened. People took notice and then we did their brand. And then, um, I mean, I don't think he, he didn't ask for history for, he just asked how we got together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, this is where it's gone. But um, yeah, absolutely. And then from putting Pure Garage together, we obviously were. There wasn't a lot of new garage around at that time. We we spent ages going through podcasts, radio shows to get find the garage. When we come out of it, we were so energized by garage. We made the best garage record ever made, a record called Three Words, which went mental. Again, radio things went did the thing I'm sorry did was used mm. as a radio one bed. It come out on the twenty five year anniversary of UK Garage. So one Radio 1 and one Extra were doing all garage all weekend and our songs and things. We got mixes out of it, central tune out of it. It was a ra- it was a bed on Radio 1. It, again, it's this thing. But the problem with if you've got an independent record and it's gone mental, yeah. you've got to put more money into it. Okay, you need yeah. another radio plugger. You need to do a video. The video's got to be somewhere sunny. It's a garage record. Yeah, yeah. It's so insane and doing all this stuff. So just to touch on it there, like you were saying, you've got that um, – you've got that – initial uh, reaction from the track being released and because it's independent and because you haven't got the label and stuff oh, yeah. behind so you and it's not you signed. An independent record and it takes like you have to go up the steps the ladder to you want to get it signed once it takes ideally I, I guess is the goal well that was the goal then so they're like it could get radio one playlist it could get one extra playlist because you should bear everyone's playing it you need to keep the keep the momentum going so um, from an outsider's perspective, like where you were saying, an ind- because some people might think, oh, it's independent and it's doing really well. So you're probably making loads of money because you haven't got to give it to... No, we had, we had no money. This was, this was the last of that Believe we talked about the advance. Yeah. This, this was the second half of the Believe money I told you about earlier. We were we took it in two halves, which was a good good idea. But basically this whole second half of it went on this record. And it went to up to about 12 and a half, 13 grand we spent on three words right. to try and get it. And But the thing is, once it stops, it doesn't get what it needs to do. That's it. Mm. We're still paying off this this debt, so nothing's coming back in. And at that stage, at that stage, it was like we had no money. There was a real bad personal thing that happened in my life. And I didn't want to, I, like, I didn't want to carry on, but it was, it was bleak. It was bleak. All our money had gone. All the money we borrowed had gone, like sort of lost a bit of faith in even the universe. I used to be, put a lot of faith in like everything happens for a reason and stuff mm. that happened personally, like made me think I can't see the reason why some of this stuff happened. So it got to a point, but we had at this time, we um, had records. We had a couple of records that were going viral, completely independent of this. We'd done a version of Everybody's Free that Holy Goof and Skepsis were playing. Mm. And it was, they were playing at Boomtown, Creamfield was getting these massive videos. Everyone wanted it. And we'd done an instrumental called Hustler and Killer P and Ira had gone on to represent radio and had rapped over this instrumental and the video had gone viral about three times, three different right. times this video had gone round of them rapping on it. So I contacted them reluctantly because he was called Killer P. Like you never want to call someone called yeah. the Killer in their name. <laughs> Like, so oh, just for people you... listening, he's, a, he's an MC, isn't he? So Killer P and Ira, two people that might know, like, so Ira, probably most people would know him if they were to know him mainstreamly, featured on Chasing Statuses. Yeah, so he's officially their MC before taking over from uh, Rage. He uh, featured on like their album, like their last album and stuff like that on a couple of tracks. I think Program was the uh, one featuring Ira, wasn't it? I think it was called yes, Program. Yes, that's right, yeah. 
Yeah. And then Killer P is obviously a, uh, he's a Guam, not obviously, but he's a Guam MC as well. Was spitting he's over. Um, years, yeah. yeah. But I, I, yeah, say some, calling someone called Killer P that you don't know and asking them essentially, do you mind recording that track that you keep doing? It's going viral. Like I was scared, but he's like <laughs> the most polite and nicest person ever. <laughs> like, so we recorded these things. We had these two records that are in real high demand and we've got, oh, what are we going to do with them? Didn't know what we we're going to do with them. Built all over the place at that time. Basically just had this idea of, well, the last little bit of money we had left, we had some other records because we were just making stuff for shows. We're starting to get, we're still doing loads of shows and still making things and mm. still collaborating with anyone. Like because of Free Words Success and Pure Garage, we could like collaborate with Lisa Mafia would come to the studio of us. And it was like, wow, this is so solid cruise Lisa Mafia. Like I used to listen to her when I was at school and yeah. tag you with skills. Like all these people wanted to work with us. So we were like, cool, let's just do it. Like, not thinking anything of it. And then we had a collection of records, some of which were in demand. And I was just people we were working with because we were fans of them. And we just had the idea, we'll just do this collaboration album. It was kind of half garage, half baseline. And it was like, not the last, not didn't feel, didn't say it was the last relativized, but it was because that was our last money. Like, yeah. our money had run out. Just we out of interest, doing. because it, 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 some like, um, if this might be a stupid question, you know where the compilation had gone in to like number 11 and number six in the, in the charts in the dance yeah. charts. how come that hadn't made like um, money for yourself that you guys could use there? Then? We, were, we were paying off the advance from believe. Right. Okay. We were paying off a real, they were taking a real high rate. Right. So the, because the interest rate was so high on that, like that what, 12 yeah, what interest rate, just a percentage that they take off every, off all the money took in. Which right. they rightly so, they're taking a complete gamble on someone who'd never released a record before. Yeah. So it's not, there's it, it, not a bad word to say against belief. They are the, the reason I'm sat here. So I'd never yeah. say a bad, but it was, and also like, this might sound weird to people listening who haven't released music, but will, will sadly sound familiar to people that do is you don't think you're going to make any money from releasing music. You're releasing music to get shows. Like, so you never, you don't think it's unheard of to, no matter what success you get to go, oh, okay, there's no money for music. I've never had money for music. Mm. And that's the two familiar labels don't pay it. And it, you know, if you're streaming, it's 0. 0, you know, everyone knows that figure of how small that money is. And I think the general, you- the general gist that we had on someone's chatting on the podcast before was saying um, every million streams roughly equates to 5,000 pounds. No. Give or take. No, you reckon it's that's too high? About, it's about $4,000. Four thousand dollars, right? Okay, yeah. Three thousand two hundred, even less um, than. Depending on you know what sort of deal we got to distribute and stuff, but yeah, it's about it's about that you know. And I, I'm not against Spotify, but it's essentially you're paying off. We we're paying off a debt, so and I was not used to getting money back from recording records anyway. So mm. releasing these things, so that was the last of our money. Um, we released this album. We had one single called Premonition on it, which we put all the money into as the radio one. Released this album. We did four, we did this ma- like massive campaign, all of our money into the campaign, into the last bit of it. And the album again did well, iTunes and stuff. The single didn't take, no one gave, no one cared at radio. Alan did all right. The tour sold out in the four places we did it. We do things in fours because we're called four. Nice. And it kind of just ticked along. This is before the streaming days. And... And then, yeah, like nothing really happened. And we started to do gigs. We started to do gigs that um, we're doing favors for people, getting onto lineups, things, squeezing ourselves onto things, still not, still not making really any money from gigs. 
And there's a long, there's a longer story, which is we meant all for how long this story of you asking our four got together is gone. I told you the whole story. <laughs> It's perfect, mate. It's spot on. I want this level of detail. It's fine. It's absolutely great. But basically, there was one, we did Peer Jam in Blackpool, which changed our lives. Um, we did Plymouth before, which is a friend, and it, for a friend, it wasn't very good. We had this, this, this is the bottom Just of the bad crowd. Road. Like bad crowds? Are we talking here? Right, okay. It wasn't very busy. Like, um, we had no, this is like the bottom, like no money. Like, this was it. Like, I was surviving from what Starbucks threw out at the end of the day because they so were is this like 2000 studio. is this like 2017 then, 2017 and then the 2017 yeah um it might even be two, 2018 again it all goes I forget the the things I know that Friends of Four was four years ago because it's right. four years next February um but we are we surviving like what Tesco's would sell, Starbucks giving away. Like it was a real, real bleak time. Went all the way to Plymouth for a fa- as a favour and we had Blackpool the next day. Plymouth to Blackpool is... Long drive. Blackpool is Pier Jam, which is an amazing gig, but drop petrol, hotels, we're coming from Plymouth. So we essentially, you're going to end up, you're going to lose money. Like, But if it goes well, it's, this promoter does We Are Festival, Amnesia, yeah. these things. Like It's a great lineup to be on. Even after being in the industry for 10 plus years, it can still be difficult to make a sustainable living when you're splitting proceeds four ways and grafting every week. Gavin talks about the darkest time for the group and how they nearly had to pack it all in before playing the most important gig of their lives. It's just, it's interesting for people to hear because obviously like where we said the whole story from back there. So you've had, you've had compilation releases, you've had like people mixed together, like you've done the stuff with like pure garage, you've done all of these bits and pieces. Um, and it's still like, like you said, 2018 there yourself, as you've honestly said, you're like, oh, we're still sort of struggling to, to make ends meet at it this still, sort of time. Still, yeah, still not making any, still not making any money. And it's obviously a bit of that's because there is four of us. So there's a lot of money to split. And we started to, we started our own labels, which can takes a lot of the, the money. We're doing everything ourselves. If you're, if you're an artist, usually you're on a label and they're taking those costs, but we're doing everything ourselves at this point. And we're going up to Blackpool after doing this gig in Plymouth that was a bag of dicks. And we're driving up. Headphones broke in Plymouth. So we've got to go via Birmingham to buy headphones that I can't afford to buy to go to this gig in Blackpool. And as we get to Blackpool, it starts raining. Like it's fucking it down with rain. And we get a call and it's a, it's a, it's a pier. There's no one on it. No one's out there in the rain. <sighs> so I was like, and I remember just thinking, like, this is it. This is going to be the end. Like, because we're going to come out of this weekend with nothing and we turn up at the pier and it's raining and along the side of the pier is like a massive pavilion like a building by the time we come out of this building to the stage the sun's come out everyone's come back and it was the best gig of our lives and we got the manager from that thing we got all those gigs i mentioned that these people do we are festival amnesia we got all of those bass jam off the back of this gig because we were we've always been good we've always been good it's just that moment and that's that that's that moment but you know that we were always thankful for that day because at one point like i can remember thinking this is it this is the last this is the last weekend i'm going to do this yeah and to go from that to suddenly then get in because the, the sun came out because you had the energy because you could show off to the people that had that influence to book you for like you mentioned there amnesia we are festival these other places it was just the right time, like all of that energy and all of that hard work. Up to the- we got our manager off the back of it. We got the guy who does our PR off the back of that gig. 
because we were so good it, it 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 sent ripples through like all these people heard about it and talked about it and yeah this it's these moments and um yeah that you know it can go either way and you've got to keep persevering you've got to keep going because you know like I didn't want to go all the way to Blackpool and buy the headphones and things. And the rain, when the rain started, you just think, but you keep going. And like, we released our first record in 2002, and that was 2018, and that was the moment that turned it around. So it's been so how you six, want it. Yeah, 16 years. Yeah. So, in answer your question, uh, four got together in Southampton. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, mate. That's all right. It's a 30 minute answer, but I love it. I love all of the details. I love all of the twists and turns. And I also genuinely, I know we're laughing there, but there will be people listening in the music industry, starting to get into the music industry, halfway through the music industry, like thinking about chucking the towel in, thinking about like, it's not going in the right direction there. And to hear from you. We're doing a documentary. Friends of Four is four years old next year. And it is the album that turned everything around. So we're doing a doc. We recorded all of this stuff, that Blackpool thing. We were vlogging at the time. all of it. So we did a documentary, a, like a brief, probably briefer than my answer to your question <laughs> um, about about Friends of Four, the making of it and what it led to and what it is. And it's about these times and it's about four artists that release independently because everyone always posts about the successes. Yeah, it's good to get the balance, but mate. There's, there's a million of these knockbacks and the shit you have to go through, like, yeah, it's, and I think people need to hear this stuff. So that's part, you know, we're going to do the documentary It's we had to claw through all the footage and stuff and that'll come out around. We'll probably release a deluxe album and release a new version of new versions of some of the bigger songs and, yeah. and stuff. So like you said there, having that balance in the music industry, having that, it's not always sunny. It's not always the nicest things that you see for people's mental health and for people to get perspective on stuff. It is refreshing and it is essential to hear practically like you said some of your darkest times and your worst part where you thought i can't do this dj anymore i can't do this producing we can't physically afford it i'm not making enough money literally in the space of a day went from that to suddenly having the most important we're going from southampton to plymouth from plymouth to blackpool from blackpool back to southampton and we're going to come back minus however much money and no one was there at either of the things like what what we doing like how long can you carry on losing money to go all around the country playing to no one that was so yeah that, and that's the turning point and i think yeah as you say it's important for people to know there are turning points it is it is it is absolutely um yeah 100 whether you're a producer whether you're a, a dj whether you're an agent whether you're someone that is putting on events whether you're someone that is organizing festivals um there will people that will suffer knockbacks and suffer fallbacks and suffer hurdles in the industry and like you said you just don't know when your when your luck and when your opportunities are going to turn um which is fantastic so moving on from 2018 there the turning point getting booked to those so for example getting booked to those big events what does that do does that just mean does that mean that you're suddenly getting a bigger booking fee so you're generating more money that way or is it just sort of like a a sort of not really like it's not like the money change but the, the the crowds are better the content becomes better because the crowds are more receptive to the thing they see they view in a certain light We're just doing better shows going to better parts of the things like say the money the money didn't get better and it wasn't like the end of our troubles for it wasn't like the end of our financial troubles but it was like oh you know you're getting somewhere mm. and then you know you're making music and people are responding to, you're getting a more natural reaction from the music which you might not get from doing our commercial shows they might not get the sort of things and respect from your peers and stuff like that stuff like the little things that you need in this business to carry on because the money takes so long to come 
So we're still we're still financially sh- struggling, but we're we're doing better shows, we're doing better things, like over succeeding. You know, we're doing a Schwire amnesia, like places I never dreamed of playing, like especially with what we do, um, Boomtown, like all these festivals, like it's ama- like amazing. Just just enjoying it, like we're all just having a good time and over succeeding. Like things have got to a point where like I've already overachieved, done more than what. So you become kind of content with what you're doing, but it's still like an overlying, like how are we going to pay for everything? How are we going to pay for everything? Because um, we 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 want to release our other artists' music. We want to support other artists because like, no one supported us. The mm. ethos of the labels is help people wherever we can because no one ever helped us. If we would have got help we'd be, you know, in a much different position now. But no one ever helped us. We had to help ourselves and we always want to be there to help other people. So we put ourselves in that position. It came round to 2020 and four were about to land the biggest commercial deal of their career with one of their tunes appearing on adverts on ITV, Sky Sports, in cinemas and TVs all around the world. Originally, the guy didn't think it was a genuine inquiry, but they soon learned that it was. Yeah, we went through 2019 and then at the start of 2020, we, we, we got a second deal from Believe in, in between that, a second advance, which kept us going. And then early 2020, we had we paid off the second Believe thing. So money started coming in each month for the labels, yeah. which was like, what? The first time we'd ever seen money from the music we sold. Yeah. Like, what, what, what? And then we got a cause light advert. That's what I was going to get onto here. So the big thing that people might recognise you from, if they've not, if they don't, for example, if they think, oh, I don't, I've never, I've not, I've not heard of four, I've not heard of Gavin before, I've not heard of stuff. You absolutely have heard his music before, one hundred percent from the cause light advert, the one where the bloke is swimming through the snow. This is what I was going to get onto. The two big points here that this is this wraps up with, be- not wraps up with beautifully, but where you were saying the turning point is here and the change in the different bits, the distribution deal. With, um, this is what I was going to talk about, the, the, the cause like advert and also getting signs to Warner Music, two very, very monumental, yeah. positive, massive things. Number one, how does it, for people that haven't watched it, you'll recognise it. It's been in the cinema, it's been on Sky Sports, it's been on Channel 4, it's been on Channel 5, ITV. It's the cause like advert where somebody is swimming through the water. It's four, it's Dread MC and it's Majestic, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, that that tune, that advert has been absolutely everywhere. Preamble on TV shows, adverts at the cinema, like absolutely everywhere. How does a distribution deal like that come around? We um, we have a generic email, are 4 at gmail.com. Yeah. And we got an email saying, oh, can we use your song in an advert? There's no no information. Is it informal as that? So we sent it to our manager. Like I said, oh, this is probably a waste of time because they come through such. You know, that's how you like anyone off the internet search. Yeah, you know, yeah. Find yeah, yeah. That's the email you'd find. And like we look, we read everything, but it's not how a company would a massive company would approach you. They'd find the manager or the agent. You'd think. So I sent it to the manager and said, this is probably nothing, but it's probably you need to chase it up. And he did. And then he come back and goes, oh, I think I think this is something. Like I went, oh, right, cool. Like we said, we've been doing this for so long and so many things almost happened. Like just didn't think anything of it. And then this is, this was July, 2019. So when did Fresh come out? 2017. So four two, years ago. So, so 2018 is four years ago. That's right, isn't it? Uh, it yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It, yeah. So that's, that's where I'm getting really messed up. I'm thinking Friends of Four come out 2017, come out 2018. So okay. yeah, Fresh come out 2018. It was the last tune on Friends of Four. We had that beat and no fucker would record on it at all. 
we sent it to everyone, everyone and their dog. Because I was like, this beat is it. I said, I'm fucking telling you, this is it. And before my music comes out, I'll I'll fucking fight anyone. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll, no one can tell me it's shit. When it comes out and it doesn't stream very well or something, yeah. then I start to doubt myself. But before, right. like, no one. So this beat, I'm sending it to everyone. I sent it to Dread, and Dread literally, like, he's amazing. He can find a hook on any beat. Yeah. So he found this hook, and I was like, oh, this is good. But he's left all this space. And I've always been a fan of Majestic, and convinced Majestic in, like, the 11th hour, please, MC, on this thing. We're recording it in January. The album come out 17th of February. We're still yeah. recording it. So this is, like, the last minute of it all. So the last track on the... The, the, the last day. track on the album. Yeah. Almost didn't make the album. It's literally, like... If it wasn't for Dread doing that thing and then begging Majestic. So that came out 2017. And then, yeah, 2019, June, we got on this email, sent it back. Then the manager goes, oh, no, I think this is something. And then nothing. I can't remember the timeline, but he's like, oh, look, this is a thing. They won't tell you who the company is, which I would suggest, it's usually suggested someone quite big. Yeah. They're going to agree. They're going to send through some terms. Right, right. Yeah, because <laughs> cool. in your mind, I suppose you're sort of like, well, that that tune yeah, came out like a couple of years ago, like it's under the last, yeah, whatever, do what you want with it, like. Yeah. And then the first of January, it's like we agreed the terms, things. First of Jan, third of January, fourth of January, they're like, yeah, this is it. It's it's coming out. It's cause light. So like, what, Jean Claude Van Damme people? Yeah, well, we're yeah. Jean Claude. <laughs> they're like, now you're replacing Jean Claude. Comes out the fourth of February. So okay, and then we went up, and then the advert come out like before Man United. We watching the, the the game and stuff, and then the Shazams went mental, and then they literally contact us out of the blue. I, I still don't know how they picked that song of all the songs that exist in the world, how they picked that song, but it was it was on so much that Shazams was so mental, yeah, that Warner signed it because they, they don't ignore Shazams or yeah. TikTok because it's natural. You can't you can't um, manipulate it. So we got signed, and it's like like what? <laughs> and then we went into lockdown, and all the sporting events stopped. Yeah, and you know, for the good or well, it was good for the label, but it's you know, we thought that was it. We thought we, this was going to be it. We got to a major label. We were on TV more than fucking anyone could imagine, and then everything stopped. The whole world stopped for being before every sporting event, and for the first time ever, every sporting event's cancelled. Like mental. Did you get without? Be, did you generate? Was it? I'm not going to ask the terms because obviously private. But was it? Was it financially? Like you were like, oh, this is it. We, I don't have to worry about money anymore. Like because I'd have it's, no idea about distribution. It's not, you, that it, it's, it's not that you don't have to worry about money anymore. But the first, the first payment we got. Obviously, it's. There's four, there's four of us in the group, mm. Majestic and Dread. So you split that were much ways for, for a start. But the um, the first thing I did is, is we were a record label that were running. We were like five years deep as a label at that stage and had never paid anyone. Not out of, well, we didn't have any money for one, but we just didn't account properly. So mm. the first, all my fresh money for the first thing went to paying off everyone that I owed money to in music. Probably not a great idea to say that. <laughs> <laughs> But it's the truth. Like we didn't, you know, again, but, but we weren't used to being paid. Yeah. But we got the believe money. And when we got this thing money, I was like, oh, wait a minute, you do get money for music. I should pay anyone it's earned. And we, we got this amazing accounting company that went through five years of accounting, brought us all back to speed, told us what we owed everyone. And I paid everyone with that money. And then 
but yeah, from the we're just about to go into our third year of the cause light thing. They've used it yeah. for three years. We get money every yeah, we get money every year. We get money every year. We got the Warner deal off of it. Yeah. So yeah, it's in, in total, it's 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 that one record generated more than every than every probably every record we've ever definitely every record we released, probably every record we ever released on the label. Yeah. In total, yeah. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Like you said, the last track <laughs> on your debut album. You were struggling to find MCs to to spit over it, and you were like, "Nah, this will this will be it." And then, literally two years later, yeah, we just blue. listened to that beat. We listened to that beat all the time on the way to kick, and I was like, "Wow, it's no one jumping on this." Yeah, but we we have this. We've had this problem, and we still have this problem now. We don't really sit in a genre. We we're garage influenced, but we were making hardcore twenty years ago. We like we're four different people, four different tastes. So no, nothing. You know, some bit more generic than others, but. Essentially, we're in between genres. We make bassy garage, um, or you know, we we call into drum and bass a bit because we like we're songwriters. But it's our interpretation of it. Mm. So we never get radio or artists playing it. So to do a song like that, you believe like a beat that you believe in, you keep hammering hammering it and hammering it. It's 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 the best feeling. The best feeling is to is for a record that you believe in and you knew was good. And we used to play it at gigs immensely not every gig fresh after friends of four but i used to play because i liked it it never like to be fair the original arrangement was mental i don't know what i was thinking but, <laughs> but like i always Just thought use the it record, as a vip now use it as a vip <laughs> the original the record, like, the record was um i just believed in it like believed in it and like for it to come back round and get the recognition and the thing to be using advert and to whatever you whatever however you judge success if you judge it as money or streams or things, however you judge it, to, to go, you know that record that you said was good? Well, it's made this much money and it's streamed this, so you were right. And you think, oh, thank God I'm not fucking going mental because I thought it was brilliant and no one else did at the time. Or you felt like, you can feel like that sometimes. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah you absolutely can. And like you said, to have that self-assurance and have the universe go, oh, we are, like you said there, however you do recognise success, it has been on multiple TV channels. It's been before and after multiple sports events. It's been in cinemas. It's been absolutely everywhere. People yeah, recognise it. It's the best feeling ever. And as, as I said earlier, with the clubs we played, we over, we've overachieved. And I think it's not a bad position to be in, feeling like you've overachieved because it takes the pressure off. You're like, oh, I feel like I've done more than I ever hoped or ever dreamed of. And now I'm just going to do stuff that makes me happy i'm just going to create what i want to create and do what i want to do and and that's that's i think every musician just wants to wake up and make music in the morning that they love that's the goal like money's brilliant whatever but that's the thing you want to wake up and go oh, i'm going to make this tune today because i i love it not i'm going to wake up and panic about how i'm going to pay for things and try and make some tune to try and get on some playlist or some radio or you know whatever you're box to try and tick to try and get a booking or try and do this i wake up and i'm like i'm gonna make this today and i'm i'm gonna sit in with this person and do this and do that and that's that's always been a goal and there's like a level of contention that i'm, I'm you know i'm so content with with that and you know we wake up every day and what music am i going to make how am i going to get more people to hear my music how am i get more people to hear the music on the label and every day is our mission to get people to listen to to our music and the music on the label and the people we believe in and that's 
That's, without knowing it, that's always been the goal. Not tonight. You're not on the list. Hi, it's Gavin Ford from Four, and you're listening to the You're Not On The List podcast for Rewind That Track. Do you think that's why you're so supportive now? Because some people that are listening might not realise. So like you said, you've got the multiple labels there. You've got the likes of Yosh. You've got the likes of Garage Shared. You've got the likes of Friends of Four. Those labels put out music that give a lot of artists probably their first break, like probably their first sort of like signing their first opportunity to be able to put stuff out and to be able to have that first signing. Do you think that's sort of what stems you and has what fueled you yeah, to, to help give those people yeah. up? Because it's quite a family. It seems from the outside, just from my perspective, it seems like quite a family orientated. Like when I say family, I mean like everybody sticking close together, even going back to that first compilation, like you mentioned, jumping straight in because of that family orientation and having that relationship with all of the artists there together, jumping in at like number six and number 11, because you're giving back basically to, to new and fresh people. Yeah, exactly that. When we that in that overlong story I told about how four got together, there obviously there was a point where I said I didn't know what to do, how to release music. I didn't know how to do it. Um, it's a lot easier now, but back then I didn't. And at that time, um, just needed advice, someone to tell you how to do it, do it yourself, do it this, do it, and no one told us. So when we started the labels, part of it was we're going to make ourselves available for new artists to help them, help them release help them answer the questions that no one would answer for us and save them time and money. If someone was there to tell us, do this, do that, we would have saved fucking years and fucking loads of money because we made like, we had to do all the mistakes ourselves. So that's what the label's there for. It's there to, um, and as, as we said in the story, we're putting all the money into our releases, into everything into this. It puts a burden on an artist, which stops you thinking about the music you're making and starts you thinking about how you're going to pay a bill, how you're going to do this, how you're going to do that. We're here to take the burden away from artists and make them think about music because, as I, as I said, like we're content now doing what we want to do because we don't have to worry about this and that. That's what we want to try and create for artists. Just you go and you be you because we never had that chance. We we would be us and then have to panic about how we're going to pay our own bills. And then to bring us all the way back up to now, the modern day. So going into lockdown, like you said, you got the distribution deal, you got the the the, the track signed to Warner, the sports game stopped, and some of the uh, distribution stopped, and some of the the advertising stopped. What was sort of the next steps out of lockdown for you guys? Like for you four, we just we just hammered the labels. We just worked on all the artists that were. It was an amazing time for artists that weren't as big as the big artists because. The, the, the majority of club promotion before lockdown was massive DJ playing a massive record to a massive crowd and everyone dancing. And in garage music, especially, there weren't people playing new garage music to big crowds. So we couldn't do that sort of promotion. For, for all the gar- talented garage producers we had, we couldn't do that sort of promotion. So we were left behind a bit. But then all clubs stopped, the playing field levelled, and we had the best garage producers, in my opinion, in the country, some of them, certainly, in the world. So I was like, look, this is like, this is your chance. We're not gigging. We can't do anything. We're in a deal with Warner, so we can't even release music for how you know forever, for however long. So we can't do anything ourselves. We're just going to work on this label. We're going to work on you, and we're going to try and build you up. And we did. We built up Select, uh, Tough Culture, these people that we, we believe in. We dedicated all our time to them. We did the odd live stream and stuff and whatnot ourselves, but Tyrone become an internet sensation going on Instagram lives all the time. So everyone was doing their own thing and stuff and we were building it up and like, yeah, we got these people to, to a point where they're some of the biggest names in that scene. And we just sat back and waited for, we, we well, we did a, we worked on a second single for Warner, which fell through at the last minute. And then, and then that brought us up to the start of this year. 
And then, um, and then we obviously got back to the point where like you could you could play it again. You could play at festivals. You could play at play at club. Well, sort of festivals. I mean, a lot of them have been pushed back. Did you? Uh, how many sort of did you get to play at this summer before uh, with, with cancellations and with bits and stuff dropping out? We did all right. We did Isle of Wight Festival, which was amazing. We are festival, which was amazing. But it was it was stuff from like two years ago and stuff that was rescheduled. It was a weird it was a weird year, and people just wanted to hear stuff they knew it was uh yeah. it was people who had been stuck in the house some a majority of people hadn't been out before they turned 18 in lockdown yeah there was like two years backup wasn't there really realistically yeah. like two years worth of backup of people like, so they they weren't used to like being hearing new stuff and um, that how we played from the first gig back out to how we played now is radically changed because it was like uh they don't want to hear this new music we made in lockdown. They don't want to hear the experimenting. They don't want to hear the stuff with the label. They're here to to have the fucking best time possible. Yeah, which is, you know, which is which is understood, and it was great. But we, yeah, we did we did some great gigs, and like next year, if there's no COVID restrictions, we'll we'll be our best ever year for gigs already. I can tell you that in in December, like I can see I can see that now. So I mean, touch wood. But it's you know it's still a weird time for music. It's still a weird time for releasing. But future's looking promising. Optimistic, mate. Absolutely optimistic. And like you said, you've got the labels there. You've got a roster of artists that you're helping curate yourself and helping give guidance to, helping give a platform to. Um, and then you mentioned there about the documentary as well. Yeah. Again, we again I think we're committed to say helping artists and helping artists by showing them that it's not all. It's not all massive crowds and flights to exotic countries and exotic things. Like, if you want to do this, like you've got you've got to work constantly. We've um we've dedicated ourselves a day to the studio. It used to be two, but for the last eight years, we do a we do a day in the studio together, at least. Is this a week, sorry, or a month, or a, a week? One yeah. day a week for the last eight years, like so, like. Like you learn, like anything, and we still learn now. That's and that's as a group, not individually. So that's loads of people putting in individual studio, like studio time, always honing the craft. We're still learning now. In lockdown, we started doing insane amount of courses. Always want to be learn more and do the best. And I think it's important that people see what goes into it goes into this into this shit. The amount of money, the amount of time, honing your craft, putting out stuff, making mistakes, learning the things. Because the internet can sometimes present that, oh, I've just made this record and it's gone massive, and that's not the case. And it's unhealthy to think that's the case. Mm. Like you said, yeah, having that overnight success, like someone said, even appearing on a TikTok video or appearing like getting a getting a thing there, like it's not it's not building a foundation necessarily for you to. Well, I think to... Scream said it takes ten years to be an overnight success. Didn't he tweet that or something? That was his that's quote. A good, that's a good quote. That is a very good. It's the truest quote ever. And if you are like, obviously TikTok's a huge thing, but it's not good to be, it's not good to come out of nowhere because there's no foundation and you can't build anything if there's no foundation. Like we're still always trying to get better. And yeah, I, I think, yeah, with the documentary, we want to show people the shit side or the gritty side of it. And the stuff that goes wrong. Cause it's so there's a lot of people sat there that maybe are sending 2000 emails to blogs not blogs anymore but you know what i mean like yeah. trying to get people to listen to their music and to let you know that you know it's worth carrying on because if you believe in what you're doing and this is what you want to do then you do have to carry on and it is worth it
I think genuinely, personally, it's sick that you guys are showing that other side to it because there is such a rose-tinted, sometimes, well, a lot of the time, there is such a rose-tinted like viewpoint in the music industry, on social as a whole, and just in life, really. So everyone's shouting about their, everyone's shouting yeah, about the wins. Everyone always just oh, shouting Ty, about the wins. Um, Tyrone in the group, like, over lockdown, he... He, he amassed a huge audience going live every night. I don't know if yeah. you saw it. I did. I did, actually. It would always come up yeah. on my notifications going, Tyrone's going live yeah. always on Instagram. But from yeah. what it looked like, it looked like he went from January of the start of this year to maybe two or three months, ridiculous, to 240,000. And yeah. people looked like it, just that jump. But people forget that he went live every night for a year previous to that. Yeah. From the first, from the first lockdown, every night. And there was a whole year. I mean, that that's still fucking quick of no one caring. But people just go, oh, he's, you know, come out of nowhere. But not, like, you have to put in the hours and preparation and learning stuff. I think people need to see the hard stuff that goes into things because it's unhealthy for people to see. And it was also like people need to learn to stick with things, with anything, like in anything in life. You need to keep with it. Gavin Ford, that has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to uh, to hear absolutely everything from the very start the very the very earliest doors of you going through your record store days going through selling and buying uh, tape packs djing belt driven turntables meeting the boys doing the djing doing the commercial stuff doing the residencies yeah, sorry, sorry it went on so long but like no mate not at all it's, it's been an absolute so it's worth 27 years whatever mash you did like it's it's uh it's no, there's no don't apologize at all mate i love hearing about the detail that not only me there will be loads and loads and loads of people that will listen to this that absolutely love hearing about the biography of artists love hearing about from your perspective that you've given from running labels from running just having the realism as well of going it took us 16 years to get to 2018 before we sort of like were, were making making money that we were sort of healthy at or even hearing the side of going you know what we were gonna have to throw in the towel but thankfully, like something was shining down on us that meant that we got in front of those people that we heard that thing. It's, it's just perfect, mate, to have that balance. And obviously, I really, really hope that the documentary goes fantastically for you as well, because I think it's just going to elevate that more and just help give that balance and help give that sort of other side of the industry. And also not just showing the other side, showing all your success as well. Fuck me, we've, for the last 90 minutes, we've heard fantastic stories and absolute incredible information and advice for people in the music industry and advice for people that are listening. And like you said, giving that platform and helping and sharing with those artists and making something that new artists can come along with and just giving your expertise and detail, mate. Gavin, it's been an absolute pleasure. No, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. And I enjoy the series. I enjoy listening to these. So pleasure to be a part of it. Listen, mate, I've told you once, I've told you twice. You're not on the list. All right, all right.